If our goal is to tap into our fat stores for fuel, we don't want to take in any outside sources of fuel. Thank goodness when I was losing weight that I did weigh daily. If you only focus on those fluctuations, it can make you think it's not working. Some people will find their scale weight doesn't change a lot, but they shrink in size. It took learning about it and really researching and digging deep to figure out why does this work? How is it different from low calorie dieting? And why is this the last thing you need to do to find the health and the weight loss benefits that you're looking for? Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Today's episode is definitely a special one. Even if you think you've heard all of the Jen and Melanie conversations, we do have some pretty fabulous discussions of intermittent fasting in this episode, and we have some really fun rapid fire questions with Jen at the end. I think you guys will really, really enjoy it. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash fast feast repeat. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. Just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you from this episode on the pinned post in the announcement section to enter to win something. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. So this is a very, very special episode. I'm really excited about it. I am here with somebody that, well, I know very well. A lot of my listeners probably know very well. If you don't know her very well, you're about to know her very well. I'm just really excited. <laughs> I'm like laughing because this is so different from all the other episodes I've done. I am here with Jen Stevens. She is the, wait for it, New York Times bestselling author of the fabulous new book, Fast Feast Repeat, The Comprehensive Guide to Delay, Don't Deny, Intermittent Fasting. You might recognize a lot of words in there. Yes, Jen, she is my co-host on my other show, The Intermittent Fasting Podcast. And so Jen released her new book, Fast Feast Repeat, and we were trying to decide if we should do an episode on this show for it. And it just has to happen because honestly, for listeners, I've been doing intermittent fasting for, I mean, almost a decade now. I started doing intermittent fasting. I said I was going to do it for a week. I never really stopped. And I maintained a very, I mean, I kind of stuck to what I was doing from day one with a few different tweaks. So on our other show, the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, we get a ton of questions about a lot of practical questions about intermittent fasting, about the different approaches, about the different types, about stalls, plateaus, all these things like that. And I often defer to Jen because she is honestly, she is the expert on all of that. And I know the reception to her book has been, well, it's a New York Times bestseller, <laughs> which kind of speaks for itself. 
but the reception has been absolutely amazing. It's such a amazing resource for anybody interested in starting or dealing with hiccups in their intermittent fasting lifestyle. It covers, yes, it goes into the science of intermittent fasting, the health benefits, all the things like that, a a very comprehensive overview. But then it's just so valuable in that it really, really goes through all the different types of intermittent fasting approaches that you can try, how to do them. And then of course, what we'll talk about today is Jen has her own approach to starting intermittent fasting. I think it's such a valuable resource for anybody living or wanting to live the IF lifestyle. So Jen, thank you so much for being here. Well, I am so glad to be here. Yeah, it's so funny (laughs) because we're used to recording together and answering listener questions, but here I am. Nice to meet your audience, the ones that don't know me. So the ones that don't know me, hello. (laughs) Glad to be introduced and the ones that do. Well, hopefully you'll learn some things maybe about me you didn't know already if that's possible, because I'm pretty much an open book, right? (laughs) We shall see. We shall see. A little bit about Jen, though. She did earn a Doctor of Education degree in Gifted and Talented Education, a Master's degree in Natural Sciences, a Bachelor's degree in Elementary Education, and she also graduated from the Institute of Integrative Nutrition's Health Coach Training Program. I assume that a lot of my audience knows you, but but I don't know. There's probably some that don't. So Jen is also the author of Delay, Don't Deny, Feast Without Fear, as well as her new Fast Feast Repeat, which is just really, really exciting. But to start things off, Jen, what brought you to intermittent fasting and when was that? That is a great question. And... <laughs> It sounds like a, the beginning of intermittent fasting stories. That's how I begin every episode. Did someone tell you to ask it like that? Somebody told me to ask you that. <laughs> yeah. That's great. You know, I first learned about intermittent fasting in probably somewhere around 2009. You know, looking back in my whole crazy diet history, that's the best that I can pinpoint it. You know, prior to 2009, like so many of the audience, I was trapped in that cycle of weight gain, weight loss, weight gain, weight loss. And I was always trying to find, you know, the next best diet to go on. And I, I felt like it it shouldn't be as hard as as it was. You know, I was always either gaining weight or losing weight at any point in my life. It was very rare that I was maintaining my weight. <laughs> so, you know, I had like different seasons of clothes shoved away and different sizes, all ranging from, you know, like a size four to six, all the way up to a size 14, 16, all shoved away. But in 2009, I can't remember exactly what I came across first. It was, you know, Dr. Burt Hearing's Fast Five approach, which is a five-hour eating window, intermittent fasting approach. At the same time, I was also reading some of the alternate daily fasting protocols. There was a Dr. Johnson who had one with an up day and a down day. And Dr. Verity, Krista Verity, who had her every other day diet. And I remember all those years from 2009 to 2014, anytime something came out about intermittent fasting, I would read it. I even stumbled across a book, Melanie, you may remember. It was on Kindle Unlimited, and it was called the What When Wine Diet, right? Was that the original name? Wait, wait, wait. You knew about that book before we talked? I mean, I read everything, Melanie. I read every book that that I could get my hands on. You know, I got it through Kindle Unlimited, right? It was on Kindle Unlimited. Okay. Yeah, it was briefly. Briefly. I 
I had it in my collection because, I mean, it was a book on intermittent fasting. When did you release that? 2014. So, you know, I was reading everything there was, but even the books that were out there, oh, and Eat, Stop, Eat, Brad Pilon, he was another one. None of those approaches ever worked for me for many reasons at that time, in that time period of my life. But the main reason was because I never saw intermittent fasting as anything different than just a way to eat fewer calories and a way to diet. And I saw it as like a temporary approach to get to my goal weight, and then I would get there, and then I would go back to how I used to live. And really, even those those early books that I'm referring to, they all pretty much couched intermittent fasting in the terms of this is a way to eat fewer calories. Either you eat fewer calories every other day with those approaches, or you eat fewer calories because you're concentrating all of your food choices in the shorter eating window. And at that time, we didn't realize there was a lot more to intermittent fasting beyond just, quote, eating fewer calories, no matter what approach you used. So I I treated it like a diet, and I never stuck with it. I never let my body adapt to intermittent fasting, so it was really, really hard. I never lost any, any measurable weight with it in all those years, 2009 to 2014. And it wasn't until finally in 2014, I went on a family cruise for spring break, And the pictures from that cruise, you know, I I looked at myself, I was 210 pounds when I got on the scale after getting back from that cruise. And I'm 5'5", so that put me in the obese category. And I felt miserable in my body. And I'm like, you know, I've got to do something. I'm, I'm smart. I have a doctorate. I have great willpower when I try to stick to something, but I can't get this weight off. So I've got to figure it out. So basically, I stumbled around, stumbled back to intermittent fasting went on to lose over 80 pounds, and I've been able to keep it off ever since. So that, in a nutshell, is what brought me to intermittent fasting. You know, my brain knew this was going to be my answer way back before I even understood how it worked. But it took learning about it and, and really researching and digging deep to figure out, you know, why does this work? How is it different from low calorie dieting? And why is this the last thing you need to do to find the health and the weight loss benefits that you're looking for? So it was 2014 that you started your version of intermittent fasting? Oh, yeah. And I did some crazy versions of intermittent fasting along the way. You know, to give some context, I mentioned some of the the earlier books that were out there. But this is before the obesity code. This is before this is before autophagy was a word anyone had ever heard unless they were, you know, in the the science halls as researchers. We just really were figuring out how is intermittent fasting how did it work? We, we hadn't heard of you know fasting clean, which is a phrase we actually coined in my Facebook groups. And I was in some Facebook support groups myself, and we were all kind of stumbling around together trying to figure this out. It was like the Wild West of intermittent fasting, really. That's really funny. I feel like even low-carb had that for a little bit. It's just crazy. So question to that, it seems like such a basic question with like the million dollar answer that people pretend there's not a million dollar answer to because they think there's already the answer. And that is, you know, traditional diets, why don't they work? (laughs) Because it's like, it's posited to us often. I think things are changing now with the literature on intermittent fasting and the success with it. But it's basically posited to us that the answer is move more, eat less. That's the answer. But 
I mean, it doesn't work. I mean, one thing you talked about in your book a lot that I really liked was the studies on like the Minnesota starvation experiment and things with The Biggest Loser. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what we see with chronic dieting, yo-yo dieting, does it work? Why doesn't it work? That's a great question. And, you know, we've all been been trained for so long, even, you know, doctors are having to unlearn this. It's all calories in, calories out. And it's, we can, you know, put it down to this mathematical formula. And the whole point of that is you control calories in and then you exercise to ramp up calories out. And then according to these formulas, you magically lose weight, get to your goal weight, maintain forever. It's all perfect, except that's not how it works in practice. And the whole point is that you can pretend to control calories in, although that's not even as easy as as people like to make it sound. And I could get into that more in, in a little while, but we can pretend to control calories in, but the whole calories outside of the equation is where our body can really thwart the best efforts of of trying to control your calories in. For example, your body can do all sorts of things based on what you're eating. Your body can raise your metabolic rate in response to overfeeding. Your body can lower your metabolic rate in response to chronic underfeeding like we see with these low-calorie diets. So pretending that it's all in your conscious control is forgetting about how powerful what goes on behind the scenes in our bodies are. We only have so much you know, willpower and if our bodies perceive that we are in you know, a starvation crisis, our bodies can do all sorts of things. Like, for example, increasing our ghrelin. Ghrelin is our hunger hormone. And you know, we've all been through those low-calorie diets where you know, we're white-knuckling it day to day to day. And then you know, one day we fall into a, you know, a bag from the McDonald's drive-thru, and then there's the end of that diet. Now we're eating like crazy. And you almost have you know that binge response, and you're like, why can't I stop eating all this food? And it's because your body has said, hey, we're in distress. And so your body has literally ramped up your hunger hormone to get you to eat more because your body is doing all of these things to try to protect you. You know, Basically, our bodies don't understand the idea of, hey, I want to lose some weight so I look better in my bathing suit. Our bodies are just focused on survival, reproduction, living. And so when we're consciously trying to restrict calories all day long, we're not well-fueled. That's when our, our bodies are trying to save our lives. You know, we we found that research. I mean, people have been doing this research. Scientists have done this research for, for decades and decades. So it's not new information. The Minnesota starvation experiment is fascinating and that this type of experiment would never be approved today. But it was, you know, right around the World War II period of, of history. And they got this group of conscientious objectors who didn't want to fight in the war, but they were wanting to kind of, you know, to give back to support the war effort. And so they were studying what do we do in these areas of, of Europe and other parts of the world where, you know, there's not enough food and people are starving. You know, how do we refeed? How do we keep people from dying of starvation? So that was really what what's kind of ironic is it was completely opposite of today's obesity epidemic. You know, in today's obesity epidemic, we're overfed and people are overweight. But at that period of time in history, they were concerned with people not having enough nutrition. So they they took these men and they housed them, you know, I think it was a university dormitory somewhere in Minnesota. 
you know, they fed them specifically to have them lose a certain amount of their body weight. When they stopped losing weight, they lowered their calories even more. They increased their exercise. You know, that's just the classic eat less, move more. And so they studied what happened to these men as they continued to eat even less, move even more. And it was fascinating to see how it affected them physically. You know, their metabolism slowed. Also, psychologically, they became obsessed with food, reading recipes. They developed all sorts of disordered thinking, like chewing their food in all sorts of crazy ways, you know, when they were allowed to eat. And then they they had a refeeding period where they had different methods of refeeding. And the ones who continued to be fairly restricted in the refeeding, they continued to have these issues. They did find that they were able to, to heal metabolism and you know, by, by having overfeeding with the guys. But when they were doing this experiment, and they called it, you know, the words of the study were Minnesota starvation experiment. They were giving these men an average of 1,800 calories a day during the starvation part. That doesn't sound like a starvation diet at all. That sounds like more food than I allowed myself when I was eating, you know, a quote, low-calorie diet. For some reason, in my mind, I I heard 1,200 calories a day, you'll lose weight. So I would try to limit myself to 1,200 calories a day. And no wonder it was hard to stick to. My body was fighting back. You know, we also found that to be true with the Biggest Loser experiment. They took some participants who had been on the Biggest Loser television show, and they followed them years after appearing on the show And they found a persistent metabolic adaptation, meaning the contestants who had been on the show and lost the weight, their bodies needed to maintain on fewer calories than when matched to someone of of their size. So someone who was their exact same weight and size, who had never gone through the extreme weight loss and dieting, they were able to eat more calories per day than the contestants who had been on The Biggest Loser. Their metabolisms had adapted to a lower caloric level of intake in order to maintain their weight. So, you know, we know over and over again that if you restrict calories long-term to a low level, your body will adapt to that. We've all lived it. And then you have that, like I said earlier, that urge to binge, the urge to overeat. That's your body saying, hey, we need some fuel. We're worried that you're, you're starving to death. And then, boom, you gain the weight even more. And it's just that vicious cycle. Yeah, actually, I'm just so fascinated by the the Minnesota starvation experiment because I think it is, like you said, it's such a good example of what happens when the metabolism does crash and leads to, you know, overeating, binging, three random things I wonder about it. One, I wonder if, so 1,800 calories, I mean, people, I mean, a lot of people I feel like on, like you said, on almost calorie-restricted diets are eating 1,800 calories. It almost makes me wonder if maybe they had been eating less if then they would have entered into like a fasting type mode. You know, like maybe they were eating too much that they never like switched over to fasting or if they had eaten it in an intermittent fasting pattern or what they were eating was like potatoes and rutabagas and turnip and bread and macaroni. Right. They were eating the foods that they expected to be not plentiful, but available, you know, after the war in Europe, you know, things that they would have on hand. So you're right. They also were not well-nourished because they weren't eating a well-rounded diet, but they were eating, you know, a typical pattern of, you know, a breakfast, lunch, dinner kind of a thing. So they definitely weren't fasting. And also their their physical activity was definitely ramped up. So they were very active. 
I think that's often the fear is that with diets or with intermittent fasting, that it's going to be a, a Minnesota starvation experiment results. Why do you find that intermittent fasting compared to traditional diets, even though it starts a arguably a starvation type response in the fast that we don't have to worry about having starvation type responses in the long term, as far as our metabolism goes, as far as binging tendencies, the feelings of white knuckling. What is the key difference there? I think the key is in whether your body is well-fueled or not. That's the key. A body that is well-fueled and happy feels different than a body that is not well-fueled. And that's, you know, the the magic of intermittent fasting. You know, I, I talk about in Fast, Feast, Repeat, a fabulous article. Dr. Mark Matson of Johns Hopkins and his colleagues put out an article, I don't know, maybe it was 2018, you know, called Flipping the Metabolic Switch. And he talks about how when we become metabolically flexible, which intermittent fasting does for us, we are able to tap into our fat stores during the fasted state, and we're able to use our fat stores for fuel. That's why they're there. That's what nature intended. So another thing to keep in mind also, the Minnesota starvation experiment guys probably, you know, by the, well, they not just probably, but definitely, they didn't have, you know, a ton of excess fat by the end of this. So that, that leads to the, you know, if you're underweight, your body's not going to be well-fueled. So they, even if they had been fasting, they didn't have sufficient fuel. The key is you want your body to feel well-fueled. And so the pattern of intermittent fasting that you and I do, time-restricted eating, where we have a daily eating window with all of our eating in that window, and then you know the fasted period of the day, our bodies become metabolically flexible. And during the fast, we're able to you know tap into fat stores for fuel, we are well-fueled because we're fasting clean. And then during our eating window, we eat nutritious foods. We fuel our bodies well during that period of time. And, and so it, it's the interplay between the fasted state and then getting the nutrients during your eating window, I think, that keeps our bodies happy. Because even with fasting, and this is a distinction that a lot of people don't understand, there's a, a mindset out there that gosh, you've got all this fuel on your body. If you're overweight, you could just fast it off and never stop fasting and just start fasting and fast, 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 fast. And your body's got all this fat and you'll be fine. And so there's a, a thought out there that your metabolic rate's not going to slow with prolonged or extended fasting. And actually, I, I don't think that that's actually true. There's going to come a point where your body's going to slow things down with fasting. So even though fasting is protective of metabolic rate, I think that extended fasting, you could get into some some trouble because eventually your body's going to say, okay, there's absolutely nothing coming in and it's time to conserve some energy. And, you know, why do I think that that's true? Well, there's a great study that was done where they followed people through a 72-hour fast. And at the beginning of the 72-hour fast, and they, they tested their metabolic rates throughout. So at the beginning of the fast, before they started, they had a baseline metabolic rate and as time went on throughout the fast, their metabolic rate actually increased. You know, it went along with, you know, as they're burning the fat, going into ketosis, ketones went up, their metabolic rate went up, up, up. Then it came to a point where it peaked. And then on the second part of, the, of that 72-hour fast, as time continued, the metabolic rate was on a downward trajectory. So 
at the end of the 72 hours, the metabolic rate was actually higher than it had been at, at baseline when they started, but it was on that downward trajectory, showing us that eventually the body is going to start slowing things down. So that's where you have to find the delicate balance for you. I'm not certain everyone has the same point that would be, okay, now my body's slowing things down. I think that it's going to be different for every body, and it depends on a lot of personal factors, you know, your hormonal factors, metabolic factors. But the key is you want to find a sweet spot for you. If you're going to use intermittent fasting and you want to keep your metabolism going strong, you don't want your body to feel like it's in danger of not being well-fueled. You know, that is so true. I hadn't really thought about that before. I was hoping you were going to bring up the, the study about the, the three days, but the individual factors of a given person, I wouldn't be surprised if some people, you know, could even go longer and it doesn't go down. And some people, maybe they, they can only go a little bit and it starts going down based on other factors involved, which may explain, you know, why people, depending on where they're coming from, when they first start intermittent fasting, may do really well off the bat. They may, you know, or they may struggle and we can... We can go into all of that. So to that approach, you mentioned something, time-restricted feed, or do you call it feeding or eating? Well, I talk about both in the book. When you read about it in the scientific literature, they say time-restricted feeding. And they generally, because a lot of them are like rat studies, you know, they're feeding them. But in practice with humans, we usually say time-restricted eating. So there's all this vernacular out there, all this terminology, time-restricted feeding, time-restricted eating. You mentioned a few keywords in everything you were just saying, you know, ADF, up, down day, one meal a day. There's so many things, and I think it can be really overwhelming to somebody. People often hear like 18-6. So if somebody wants to start intermittent fasting, is there one approach that is great for everybody to start with. How can a person know, well, first of all, you can maybe clarify a little bit what the different approaches are, and then how can a person know which one to start with? That's a great question. So that is why I actually developed the 28-day fast start. And that is something that's in Fast Feast Repeat, and it's the the 28-day fast start. And why 28 days? <laughs> it's because your body needs to adjust. You know, we're so used to, to, you know, quote, diets. By the way, intermittent fasting is not a diet. And, you know, diet refers to what you eat. It's your your foods that you're choosing. And with intermittent fasting, it works with any way that you would want to eat. You lean paleo. Other people may feel, you know, feel better low carb. Some people lead all the carbs like me. You might be someone starting off with the standard American diet. However you're eating, intermittent fasting is when you eat. Your diet is what you eat. So just to get that out there. But, you know, when you're starting a new approach, I guess that's a better way of saying it, a new approach to eating, like intermittent fasting, we're so used to, you know, you start and the best results you're ever going to get are right at the beginning of any new plan, typically. But that is the opposite of how a lot of people find intermittent fasting to be. With intermittent fasting, you might actually gain weight at first, which sounds crazy because you're you know, eating in a smaller window of time. How could you possibly be gaining weight? Well, there are a lot of factors that go into that that I could get into in a few minutes. But in my 28-day fast start, the first 28 days are for you to basically nail the clean fast, let your body adapt to fasting, and don't focus on anything like weight loss or body changes yet. You're just trying to adjust to to fasting. And by the way, the fast start, F-A-S-T, actually stands for something. 
F means fast clean. A is adapt. That's where your body is learning how to tap into your stored body fat. S is settle in. You're settling into a different routine every week of the fast start. And then T is tweak. That means even during the fast start, you are able to go between the different plans. So I've got a quiz in there and in the fast start that you can take. There's three different approaches that you can choose from that'll help you, you know, whether you, depending on what your quiz tells you, you could start with the easy does it approach. And that's a way of really easing in. If you're somebody who has never fasted and you want to just give your body all the time in the world to adapt, there's the easy does it approach. And then we have the steady build approach for someone who's kind of in the middle, who, you know, is ready to get in there, but not not too much. And then we have the rip off the Band-Aid approach, which, Melanie, is where I would have put you. <laughs> yes. Yes. The rip off the Band-Aid approach where you start with a, a shorter eating window. But as I said, during the, the 28 days, you can go back and forth. Like maybe you say, I'm going to rip off the Band-Aid and you start like that week one and you're like, oh, wait, maybe not. You can ease back and scale yourself back. But the point of the fast start is to, like I said, nail the clean fast and get your body adjusted. You're going to have all sorts of feelings during the during the fast start, during the t- first 28 days, because your body is not going to be well-fueled yet. And that is so important. You know, once your body adjusts to fasting, you feel great during the fast because you are well-fueled. Your body knows how to take your stored fat and produce ketones to give your brain great energy, you have great mental clarity. But the beginning, none of that is going to be true. So you're going to feel like you're walking around in jello. Your brain is going to feel like it's stuffed with cotton. You're not having a good fuel source for your brain. You just feel maybe even hangry during the adjustment phase. But for the the 28-day fast start, I have people start with time-restricted eating with a different eating window. So if you're in the, you know, the easy does it approach, then your eating windows are going to be longer and you're going to gradually shorten them versus rip off the Band-Aid. You're starting with a six-hour eating window and you start with two meals in a six-hour eating window and then you gradually shrink it until you get to a shorter window. That would be the rip off the Band-Aid approach. So everyone is starting with time-restricted eating. Then after you feel like your body is adjusted, and it, you know, 28 days is the number that I gave in there because that's just a good rule of thumb average. You, you may find it takes you more like six weeks or even eight weeks to get adjusted. Once you start feeling good during the fast, that's when you can start experimenting with other types of things like the up and down day approach, the alternate daily fasting protocols. And I have a chapter in Fast Feast Repeat called Tweak It Till It's Easy. And that's where you can, you know, experiment with different things, try different approaches. You know, someone just starting off probably doesn't want to jump right into alternate day fasting where you're doing like a 36-hour fast and then a 12-hour eating window. That That's a lot of fasting for someone who's, who's not built up that fasting muscle. I like to think of it as, you know, if you want to run a 5K, you know, they have a program, Couch to 5K. I know probably everyone's heard of that, but you don't do it in one day. You don't like get off the couch and run a 5K. You build up to it. And so I want people to think of building their fasting muscle in the same exact way. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, 
It's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. So I just had sort of an epiphany in what you were saying, because you were saying that the difference earlier, you were talking about how that maybe the difference between like the key to why intermittent fasting works and not calorie restriction is whether or not we're nourished, you know, receiving the energy that we need. So you were just speaking about how in your fast start that, you know, it's the focus is on the fasting you actually recommend it, you know, that people don't change during the fast start their, their dietary choices from what they've been eating. Let's just use an extreme example. Let's say somebody is not eating anything nourishing. So let's say they're eating a lot of calories maybe, but there's just no nourishment, but they're doing intermittent fasting and they're losing weight. So is their nourishment coming from their own body fat, you think, rather than what they're eating? And is maybe that a reason that it might stop working eventually? Like, does there come a point where you do need to address your food choices? Well, that, that's a great question. And, and let me speak to it from my own personal experience. When I started intermittent fasting and really like leaned into it in 2014, finally said, this is what I'm going to do. I was eating at that point of my life, like probably a teenage boy on a college campus. (laughs) I was eating fast food. I was eating junk food. That's what appealed to me. That's for whatever reason, I was just really, I focused on ultra processed foods. That's what I craved. That's what my body liked. I didn't eat very many vegetables. I didn't eat much nutritious food or, you know, I didn't get a lot of nutrition. And looking at my dinner plate now, it's crazy to think of that. Like, 
you know, I'll go to a restaurant, for example, that my husband and I have gone to for years and I'll look at the menu and I will think, gosh, that's what I would have ordered in, you know, 2015 or 2014. I would have ordered that. But now I'm over here getting something completely different because my tastes have changed and it happened naturally. And so I think that as my body adjusted to intermittent fasting, I started hearing my body's cry for nutrients. And then I suddenly started craving different foods. I think that when, when we're overfed, like so many of, of us in, in modern times, you know, we're the, the, I love the phrase overfed but undernourished because it really speaks to the problem. We, we've eaten too many calories, right? Because we're, we're overweight. We've eaten too much food, but we, we're not nourished. And I talk about this in Fast Feast Repeat. You know, now if I were to go to McDonald's and, and get a, Big Mac meal and with fries and a Coke, and that's a lot of calories, but it wouldn't provide my body with good nutrients. And so the rest of the day, I would be strangely unsatisfied. You know, my body's like, where's the nutrients? But if I eat a high quality meal with a lot of nutrients, I'm satisfied much more quickly and I don't have that need to keep looking for something to eat. But again, that happened for me naturally. And we find in the intermittent fasting community that that's almost a universal truth that when people are fasting clean, you know, they start off eating, you know, whatever it is, however they were eating before. And then over time, their body starts to direct them to eat differently because you realize you feel better, you feel more satisfied. And then all of a sudden, you're a completely different eater than you had been. You mentioned, you know, feeling satisfied. One of the things you talk about in the book is how do you, you know, stop when satisfied? And you provided some like really awesome tips and tricks. You said like use a smaller plate or use a smaller amount of food than you think you need at the beginning. You know, we've all heard the the phrase, my eyes are bigger than my stomach, right? So you load up your plate with more food than you need. Like think about Thanksgiving dinner. You know, we we pile that plate high and then we eat till it's gone. And then a little while later after the meal, you realize, oh, that was too much. You ate too much. But while you were eating it, there's a disconnect between the receptors in your stomach and the had enough in your brain. And so by the time you've actually eaten it and gotten the message that was too much, it's too late. You already ate it. So that's why I suggest, we've heard this for years, the whole idea of serve yourself less food. With intermittent fasting, though, you eventually start to tune into those those signals better. And then you don't need, you know, the little the the tricks and tips, perhaps. It takes longer for some of us. I still have the problem of even now, this many years in, even though I understand the signals, if I put too much on my plate at the beginning, I'm still likely to finish it just because it's delicious. So serving yourself a little bit less than you think you might need with the permission to go back and have seconds if you are still hungry later, that'll really help a lot of people with that overdoing it. I think we've talked about this before, but I think you and me both, I was always the type at restaurants, like, I mean, I would eat everything. I couldn't understand how people could not finish everything on their plate. Yeah. I like to eat a big meal. (laughs) So if, you know, when I'm serving dinner for, for me and for my husband, I will usually give myself less than I give him. But he is fabulous at stopping when he's had enough. It is almost comical because he's a naturally slim person who's never struggled with his weight. So I watch him eat and he starts piling it up and doing weird things with his fork. 
probably no one would ever notice it except me because we've been married since 1991. So I've been watching him eat for a lot of years now. But I can tell when he's about ready to stop eating because he starts doing this thing with his food. And then he just stops. Like I made these pork meatballs the other day. It, was, it had rice, it had vegetables, and it had pork meatballs. He stopped eating with one meatball on his plate. I would have eaten that last meatball just because it was there. Even though I, you know, I, I try to stop when I've had enough. I would not have been been leaving one meatball on my plate. So I would have just given myself fewer meatballs at the beginning, and then I could have more if I wanted them. But the whole stopping, right? He he just hears that signal. Just boom! I'm not eating that meatball. One of the things you mentioned, which I have been picking up on, and I. I'm wondering about the science behind it, but you talk about the sigh that you get after meals. I don't know the science behind it. Well, I read one thing and I thought it was that, but now I'm wondering if it's something else. I had read before it's actually because your body's getting acidic. And so it's a response to that. But now with the whole lumen device thing and measuring carb fat burning, I'm wondering if it has something to do with exhaling carbon dioxide. I don't know. It could even just be a physical mechanism, like your food is now protruding into your diaphragm, and so you have to gasp for air. I mean, I don't know. It could be a physical thing. (laughs) Hard to know. But I don't know if anybody, anybody has researched that. But the point is that your body sends you all these signals that you've had enough, but we have disconnected from them. You know, just the whole finish what's on your plate. For whatever reason, We've all been taught to finish what's on our plate, your mom, your grandmother, whoever you were, you just felt like you had to, but we really don't. So, you know, if you've got kids and you're watching your children eat, don't ever say to one of your children, hey, finish your dinner. Uh Uh-uh, no, let your kids stop with one meatball if they want. Well, I have some more questions about the 28 days, but I guess first to clarify, what are the exact, do you like the word rules? Is the word rules okay? What, What are the exact rules of the clean fast? I like to say we have three fasting goals. We have goals. Yeah. And fast, feast, repeat. You know, the idea of the clean fast is something that a lot of people resist in the fasting world. Some people ridicule the idea completely, which is fine. You know, (laughs) that's why I have something in there called the clean fast challenge for anybody who's like the rebel. Because, you know, I taught school for 28 years. I know all the children in the classroom and there's the rebels out there who are like, oh, yeah. You tell me not to do it, I'm going to do it anyway, right? So <laughs> I, I challenge everyone to take the clean fast challenge and, and try it my way and, and let your body adjust to the clean fast, if, and then you'll see. Most people become believers after they, after they try it, which, you know, very few people have ever said I tried it, and then I decided I liked it better the other way. In fact, I don't know if anyone's ever said that. But to understand the clean fast, I framed it around three fasting goals. And our three fasting goals, fasting goal number one, this is one I learned from Dr. Jason Fung after I read the obesity code, and that was the role of insulin. And when it comes to, you know, fat loss or, you know, fat gain, you know, whether we're storing or whether we're, you know, tapping into our fat. And so we want our levels of insulin to be low. So fasting goal number one is get your insulin low. And I go into great detail about this in Fast, Feast, Repeat. But hyperinsulinemia, which is chronically high insulin all the time, is linked to so many of our negative health conditions that that we're plagued with these days. You know, autoimmune diseases, obviously obesity, metabolic syndrome. But having chronically high levels of insulin all the time are just not good for our bodies for many, many reasons. You know, even Alzheimer's is called type 3 diabetes by some because it's linked to high levels of insulin in the brain. So we want to get our insulin low. 
insulin is anti-lipolytic, meaning it's anti-fat burning. So when you have high levels of insulin, it's hard to tap into your fat stores efficiently. And also, that's going to mean you're not going to be well-fueled. If you're not tapping into your fat stores well, you could be just hangry and starving and and not well-fueled. So we keep our insulin low by not doing anything that causes our bodies to release insulin. Eating, of course, causes our bodies to release insulin. So you don't eat during the fast, obviously. But certain flavors trick our bodies into thinking foods are coming. For example, diet sodas, zero-calorie diet sodas. Your brain, you know, you taste taste the zero-calorie diet soda on your tongue, and your brain says, ooh, something sweet's coming in. Well, our brains don't understand zero-calorie artificial sweeteners. Our brains understand that sweetness is associated with some kind of form of like glucose, sweetness found in fruits, honey, you know, any kind of, you know, even like some vegetables, but our brains have that sweetness coming in. And so we release insulin in response. That's called the cephalic phase insulin response. So we don't want to taste anything that makes our brain think food is coming. Okay. So that's fasting goal one, keep insulin low. You don't want anything that makes your brain think food is coming in. What we can have during the fast, things that, you know, water does not make your brain think food is coming in unflavored water. You don't want to add fruit flavors to it. You don't float a cucumber slice in your water. Don't add apple cider vinegar to your water. Just keep it plain. Sparkling water is also fine. Black coffee and plain tea are okay during the fast because they have a bitter flavor profile. And a bitter flavor profile on its own is not associated with insulin response. Our bodies don't associate the bitter flavor with needing insulin. So that's why black coffee and plain tea would be fine. You want to avoid the herbal teas like apple cinnamon deliciousness, things like that, anything that's going to have a sweet flavor. Certain herbal teas like yerba mate, I know I say that wrong every time. We've debated that. Someone actually sent me how to say it, and someone who lived in South America sent me how to say it, and I still can't remember. But anyway, yerba mate is how I always say it wrong. That one has a bitter flavor profile, and it's it's likely fine during the fast. All right, so fasting goal one, keep your insulin low. You don't want anything that's sweet or food-like or makes your brain think food is coming in. Fasting goal number two is you want to tap into your stored fat for fuel. And of course, keeping insulin low helps with that as well. But we want to keep from taking in other sources of fuel during the fast. You know, for some people out there in the world, you know, there's a train of thought that if you're taking in you know, something like MCT oil or butter in your coffee or even exogenous ketones, that that's still going to be fine. That's going to be fasting. Well, if our goal is to tap into our fat stores for fuel, we don't want to take in any outside sources of fuel. So keep the fat out of your coffee. Keep the exogenous ketones out of your mouth (laughs) or however you're taking them. You don't want to take in any sources of fuel. And the third fasting goal is we want to experience increased autophagy. Autophagy is the the buzzword that all of a sudden everyone was talking about in 2016, and it was after the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded based on scientific research into autophagy. And we learned that fasting increases autophagy. And so we want to have increased autophagy during the fast. Well, what shuts down the rate of autophagy? Protein, taking in protein. So during the fast, you don't want to have things like bone broth, 
because bone broth is going to have protein and your body's not going to need to rummage around and recycle your excess proteins if you're taking in a source of protein. So fasting goal three is to experience increased autophagy by not taking in anything that's going to slow that down. So those are our three fasting goals. Keep insulin low, tap into your stored fat for fuel, experience increased autophagy. Yeah. So for listeners, if you'd like to learn more about details of any of those topics, because they're so fascinating, I've had quite a few different interviews. I've had an interview on autophagy with Seamland. I just this week released an interview on ketones and ketosis with the makers of a company called Biosense, a breath analyzer device. I've had David Sinclair, James Clement. That's a really good episode. I'll put links to all of these in the show notes if you want to learn more. And the show notes, again, will be at melanieavalon.com slash fastfeastrepeat. Okay, big question. When a person is doing the fast start, how should they know if they're making progress and what should they do <laughs> and what should they not do? <laughs> okay, good, good question. The 28-day fast start is not the time for people to expect weight loss or body changes. And I really attempted to hammer that home in Fast Feast Repeat. How are people responding to that, by the way? I still have people who are like, it's day 29 and I weighed myself and I didn't lose any weight. What did I do wrong? And I'm like, go back and read it again. <laughs> because I have people weigh themselves and take measurements and take photos on what I call day zero before they started. So they just have that baseline to know. Then for the whole 28-day fast start, I don't want people to weigh themselves or take progress photos or take measurements during that whole 28 days because the goal is to let your body adjust to fasting. And you should not have any weight loss expectations because your body may not be tapping into your fat stores yet. You might actually be overeating during your eating window because you're not well-fueled, because you're not tapping into your fat stores yet. Your body might freak out and increase ghrelin, like I talked about earlier, telling you to overeat. So you actually could even gain weight during the fast start, which is, you know, the opposite. I think you'll see in any diet and lifestyle book, hey, start this plan, you might gain weight. But I'm being honest here because your body has to make a lot of changes as you adjust. Once you start tapping into your fat stores, then you're well-fueled, then you can see these positive body changes. So on day 29, that's the new baseline. That's when I want people to weigh again and to measure again and take photos again. Now, if you're one of the lucky few that that does see some weight changes between day zero and day 29 or some body changes, that's fantastic. But for the people who don't, you start from those day 29 results, and that is the baseline that you use going forward. And so I want people to really have several tools in their measurement toolbox, such as weighing daily and tracking your overall progress by calculating a weekly average, you know, where you add up all seven weights for a week. And then on day seven, you find the average by dividing them by seven. You could also have an app that does that for you. Like Happy Scale is the one that I love. If you're on iOS, I think it's called, there's one called Libra. It's not the same company, but it's similar if you're on Android. But you really only want to focus after the 28 days are over for the next coming weeks. You want to focus on what your weight trend is doing over time, not the daily fluctuations up and down and up and down. Also take progress photos. One thing about intermittent fasting that is just striking 
is what we call body recomposition because some people will find they don't change a lot of weight. You know, their scale weight doesn't change a lot, but they shrink in size. And they're like, how is this happening? Well, when you think about how we're preferentially burning fat during the fast, we also have some other hormonal changes going on during the fast, such as increased human growth hormone. So you're better able to build muscle. So that results in you might not see changes on the scale, but you're literally shrinking. Your body fat goes down, your muscle mass goes up, no change on the scale, but you're wearing a whole different size smaller in clothing. So I want you to have the the photos, use your clothing to measure. Also, you can measure your waist size or you know any other parts of your body that you want. So after that 28-day fast start, start looking at all those different measures to see what, what's changing over time. It's only the overall trend that matters. And I also want people to focus on the things that are changing instead of getting obsessed about the things that are not. Here's an example of that. You know, some people find that they lose weight on the scale before their clothing size changes. So like, for example, someone might post in the Facebook group, I've lost 30 pounds on the scale, but I'm still wearing the same size pants. What am I doing wrong? He's like, well, you're not doing anything wrong. You've lost 30 pounds. That's amazing. Something is changing inside your body. Maybe you're losing fat from a fatty liver. Visceral, dangerous visceral fat is clearing out. You know, don't worry about that. If something is changing, you're making progress. On the flip side, there'll be somebody who says, well, I've lost you know, two pants sizes, but my scale weight hasn't changed. What am I doing wrong? Again, you're not doing anything wrong. You're losing fat, probably building muscle. You're having body recomposition. So I want people to focus on the things that are changing and know that everything else is going to catch up over time. Yeah, that was one thing I really, really loved from your book. I think for the progress, a lot of people often focus on one of the things. Like, you know, a lot of people are really scale fixated. A lot of people are measurement fixated. A lot of people are photo fixated. A lot of people are fixated on like how one part of their body looks, like their arm or their legs, you know, but you were like really clear. You were like, if something changed, the photos, the pants, the measurements, the scale trend, then you made progress. And that was like such a freeing way of looking at it because it frees you from that one thing you're focusing on to, you know, the broader picture. Because I've seen it really thousands of times. People will make such a discouraged post. They're like, I've lost 30 pounds, but my pants still fit the same. Why is this not working? And and I'm like, it does work. You know, we've just seen that so many times. I want people to have the freedom to say, okay, I am making progress and to, to honor that they are instead of being stressed out about what's not changing. Yeah, I I really liked that point. So let's say that a person, they haven't made progress. So they can check all the boxes, you know, the weight's not changing, the mirror, the clothes, the scale. If they did all the things that they made the metabolic changes in their metabolism and now like what would be the next step? So now do they need to look at like food choices? Do they need to fast more? So people who aren't making progress, and I guess you can like we can even throw in people who perceive they're not making progress. Here's an actual quote from page 118, and I wrote it bold and capitalized and off by itself. Do not expect to lose any weight or any inches during the first 28 days. Do not expect to. Now, I'm not saying you won't because people do. People do lose weight in inches. Some people do. But I don't want you to have that expectation. So when you get on the scale, do your new photos, day 29, if everything is not better, You don't have the expectation that it was going to be. 
Now you're ready to proceed because the, the first 28 days were for adjusting and learning how to do this new thing. And now going forward, that's when you can start to tweak, but starting from day 29. So you don't, don't say, all right, I'm on day 29. Nothing happened. How can I tweak now? No. Starting from day 29, you just keep intermittent fasting and now use that new data from day 29 on to judge whether you need to tweak. Do not use the data from days 1 through 28 to make any judgments at all about working or not working because that your whole the whole thing you're trying to do is to let your body adjust to fasting. So the adjusting to fasting is happening in the 28 days. So say somebody at day 50 same question. They feel like they're not making progress. Well, that is when it's you should be tweaking. That's when it's time. That's the tweak it till it's easy chapter. There's so many things you can tweak. You can tweak eating window length. You can tweak whether you're doing the up and the down day protocol. I even have something in there called the hybrid approach. And this is just what blows my mind, Melanie. You know, we talk about time-restricted eating. We talk about the up and the down day or alternate daily fasting. I put them together and call it the hybrid approach where you can have like a down day, an up day, an eating window day, a down day, an up day, an eating window day. And you just kind of do a mixture of things. And people are like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you could do that. (laughs) I'm like, of course you can. You could do whatever you want. This is your, I call it your intermittent fasting toolbox. But it blew my mind that no one had thought, or I'm sure some people had, but that, that so many people never thought of mixing and matching and trying different things. Like people thought they had to do this one or that one, but that's not true. To clarify further, the 28 days, do they stick to one? Yes. For the 28 days, we're focusing on time-restricted eating because you're trying to build that fasting muscle. And I don't think that you're ready. I mean, maybe you are. Maybe your fasting muscle is built up really, really quickly, especially if you've been, you know, for example, eating a ketogenic diet and your your fat-burning enzymes are really strong and you're you're great at tapping into fat and you've been burning fat with the keto diet. You're going to probably adjust more quickly to intermittent fasting. Maybe you're ready to do a 36-hour fast. But for most people, you know, you want to just really first focus on the time-restricted eating before you start experimenting with the longer fasts, like my couch to 5K example. You got to build that fasting muscle. I'd actually been meaning to ask you this for like the longest time. So up day, down day, and ADF, they're sort of the same thing, but not really. Like up day, down day is ADF, but not all ADF is up day, down day. It's all terminology and wording. Alternate day fasting, ADF, in strict definition of it, would be, well, and really it depends on who you ask. Like, for example, Krista Verity, who's done the bulk of the research on alternate daily fasting, she doesn't do full fasts. She's, she has some research where they've, they've done full fasts, but most of her research, they have a 500 calorie, what we call a down day. And really the words down day, up day, that, that wording right there came from Dr. Johnson. Oh, and Dr. Johnson, was it a fasting approach at all or was it just calories? Really, it was just calories. And even Krista Verity with her up and down day approach, she called her book was called The Every Other Day Diet. And she had you, you know, eating 500 calories every other day. She still considers her plan to be more of a calorie cycling program than actually the word fasting. Okay. Actually, one of the things I hadn't really realized until I read your book, because I hadn't come across this literature about ADF. Because I think a lot of people see ADF as, oh, no, I need to lose more weight. Like, 
it seems more restrictive, but you actually talk about how it can actually like boost metabolism. Like it can actually be a fix for that, which actually I hadn't considered it. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes. And that's the the up day, the the feature of the up day. That's your metabolic boost day. We know from the the science of overfeeding that if you overfeed, eat more than your body needs, your body tends to respond by cranking up your metabolic rate in response to that. And so that's the point of, of the updates. In Krista Verity's research, they found that, you know, they had the 500 calorie down day or the modified fasting day, I think is what she calls it. That's her terminology, the modified fasting day, because you are eating a 500 calorie meal. But on the up day, it's unrestricted. So you just eat, when you wake up in the morning on that up day, the eating day, you just eat according to how you want to eat that day. You're not supposed to also be dieting or restricting or having a one-hour window or you know any of that because they found that the participants who were unrestricted on the up days ate, I think it was 110% of their, quote, caloric needs on those days. So they were slightly overfeeding. They weren't like binging or eating twice as much food as they needed. And so even if you only thought that this was working because of calories in, calories out, that would create the calorie deficit. You know, the 500 calorie day, and then the next day you ate 110% of your caloric needs. Mathematically, you see that is still a calorie deficit. But if you get beyond the whole idea of calorie deficit and think about metabolic rate, you understand that the up day with the slight overfeeding is very protective of metabolism. It's so interesting because... Like I already said, I think a lot of people see ADF as like more restrictive in a way, but because it has that focus of overfeeding that actually can maybe let people get the best of both worlds and that they actually lose more due to the severe deficit on the quote down day, (laughs) the fasting day, and then they get that metabolic boost. I wish I could do ADF. I just, it just doesn't resonate with me. Well, that's fun. And a lot of people feel that way about it until if you're someone who's been doing time-restricted eating or the eating window approach for a while and you find that you your body has adapted to that approach and you're not losing weight, but you still have weight you'd like to lose, that's when we really recommend you try ADF or even like 4-3 where you have three down days a week. It doesn't have to be strictly every other day. You can even just do two down days a week if you wanted to. People say it sounds like it's going to be so hard and they dread it and they don't want to do it. And then they start doing it and they're like, oh, I love it. <laughs> we hear that over and over and over again. And a lot of people, when Fast Feast Repeat came out and they read it, even some of my moderators, they said, okay, when I read Fast Feast Repeat, I finally got it. And I realized that I had been restricting on my updates. And so then they started having you know, unrestricted updates. And I don't mean that they're like force feeding themselves to the point that they're overeating on purpose, like just to go crazy, but eat without feeling like they need to diet, just eating till satisfied within a long period of time, like two meals, three meals. They finally started having better results. I'm so attracted to the the health benefits, like the longevity benefits potential of it with that. I think what you might be getting from that severely low protein intake talked about this on the intermittent fasting podcast, but I ordered Prolon and it was an epic fail, but I'm thinking of keeping the, it was an epic fail because of me, not because of the concept. I'm thinking of maybe I still have some of the soups that came with it. And I was like, oh, I could use these as like the down day maybe for ADF. We'll see. 
And one thing I want to point out, so much of this research, as I said, was done by Dr. Krista Verity and her group. And here's a little something that a lot of people don't know. You know, there's a whole train of thought in the fasting community that the 500 calorie, you know, modified fast where you're like, I recommend that if you're going to do it fast, clean all day, have your 500 calorie meal all in one small window and then begin a second fast. So instead of ha- instead of thinking of it as one 36-hour to 42-hour fast, it's really a fast, a 500-calorie meal, another fast, and then you wake up the next day and it's your up day. But there's there's a train of thought in the community that having that 500-calorie meal is, you know, not as good as if you just fasted your way through it and did a complete 36-hour clean fast. But with Krista Verity's research, they've done it both ways. They actually found the people having the 500-calorie meal lost more weight over time, which is very counterintuitive. And there's one more variable with her research that we can't discount. They're not fasting clean. You know, she's still very much caught up, which is really interesting, but she's still very much caught up in the whole calories paradigm. So she lets them have, you know, zero-calorie beverages, like a diet soda. And so I, I think it would be very interesting if she did the research with with clean fasting instead. I'd like to see the difference that would make. That'd be really fascinating. It would be. I wonder if they'd still see that same benefit because, you know, if you're not fasting clean, you know, if your insulin is high because you're drinking diet sodas, that's a variable that you can't discount. Three little things. I love when I read books and there are just some gems that like just stick with you. I was going to share them with the audience. That works for you. My favorites. One was something that I think a lot of people experience and that's you talked about the scale and that like why you shouldn't weigh yourself during the 28 days. And you're talking about how like, you know, it can potentially go wrong either way. Like if you see your weight loss, then you might overdo it. And then on the flip side, if you see you you gained weight, then you might freak out and you know, think it's not working. Like basically it's kind of like a lose, it could be a lose-lose situation. It sabotages you either way. You know, we, we have people who say that psychologically, if the, if the scale weight is down, they're like, yay, I can relax a little bit. I'm, this is working. And then, you know, they sabotage. Or if the scale is not down, they're like, this isn't working. Forget it. And then there's that sabotage. I've played all those games in my mind, which is why I can point them out to people. <laughs> I haven't weighed myself in years. So for that very reason. The other scale thing I loved, I loved it. You talked about. <laughs> You're saying for people, when you do start weighing yourself, because you do talk about, you know, the importance of weighing regularly to get, you know, the the weekly average and things like that. But for people who just can't handle that psychologically, you talked about getting a, getting like a physical scale and stepping on it and never changing. Would would you like to tell listeners? I just thought this was brilliant. I read this somewhere and I actually, when I read it, this is years ago, probably, gosh, over 10 years ago, I read this somewhere and I can't remember where, but get a doctor's scale, the kind with the balance on it, you know, that you have to move the little weights and stand on it and adjust it to your weight and then get off and then tell everyone in your house they're not allowed to touch it. And then you get on the scale the next day and only move it down if you need to, but never move it back up. So you never have to see the upward fluctuations. You just keep moving it down as you go from day to day, when on the days that your weight is lower. So that way, don't worry about the fluctuations because weight is like a zigzag. Even when I was losing weight, thank goodness when I was losing weight that I did 
way daily and once a week calculated my weekly average. And I only worried about the comparison of the weekly averages. But when I look at my graph, because I had a scale that was one of those Bluetooth scales and it would send the weight to the internet and then I would have it on my app. My my weight went up, down, up, down, up, down. But overall, it was sloping down. If you only focus on those fluctuations, it can make you think it's not working. Yeah, it's so interesting because originally, like back in the day, I would have the mindset of don't weigh yourself. But actually, I think it's for a lot of people to either don't weigh yourself or weigh yourself every single day so that you you know become aware of these fluctuations and can see the trend. You've got to have a way of, of smoothing out that trend with the app or with the weekly averaging, and you cannot let those fluctuations get inside your head. Yeah. I did read a study too. It was interesting. It was looking at weight loss and people who weigh or don't weigh. And it seemed that people who weigh lose more weight. And they don't know if it's like, it's probably like accountability. That research is there and it is true. But if, if you're somebody who's going to play those mental games, you have to understand the trend. That's the key. Then the third thing I loved was you talked about body set point in the book. And it was interesting. You had some research in there about maybe it took, I think you said like maybe a year. We won't go on a tangent about body set point, but you know, maybe if the body maintains a lower weight for a certain amount of time that the body might reset to that weight. And you pointed out that if a person doesn't make seemingly progress <laughs> after the 28 days that you can reframe it as a new body set point of not gaining. All right. So I asked on my Facebook group for questions for you. I knew that you did that, by the way. Someone told me. I told people not to tell you. Sorry. People tell me everything. Did you see the questions though? No, I didn't see the questions. I knew it would leak out. wanted it to be a surprise. Okay. Can we do some rapid fire questions? They're really fun. I would love that. I was actually looking forward to it. As soon as I heard that that was happening, I was really excited. But no, I didn't I didn't hear what they were. They're really good questions. I've been really looking forward to this for a long time. Okay. So these are just going to be all over the place. Sarah wants to know, she actually has three questions. She wants to know, she says, why did you stop extended fasts? Were you doing extended fast? Oh, and she, and she wants to know what's the longest fast you've done? I think people use the word extended fasting incorrectly because... And I don't know what if Sarah is or not, but people think that alternate daily fasting is extended fasting and it isn't. I was doing alternate daily fasting right after I read the obesity code. And really reading the obesity code is one reason I wrote Delay, Don't Deny because I was so excited because I knew Jason Fung was writing this book, the obesity code. I'd seen it coming and I was thrilled and it was the spring of 2016 and I had been maintaining my weight for a year, but I still had so many questions. So then I read the obesity code and I was waiting for him to tell me what to do and he really didn't. (laughs) Except in the back, he had this appendix where it had like some kind of alternate daily fasting protocols in there. I'm like, well, that's what Dr. Fung has in his book. I had been using the eating window approach, but I'm going to do some alternate daily fasting because that's what's there. And so I started doing 36 to 42-hour fasts. I I was doing three of those per week. But a 36 to 42-hour fast as part of the alternate daily fasting is not really what we would call an extended fast. So I never regularly did extended fasts ever, even though in the spring of 2016, I did alternate daily fasting. I actually did four, three. I think I fasted on Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. And the other days, I just ate according to how I wanted. I didn't you know, diet on those days. But I've only done extended fasting. And when I, when I say extended fasting, I'm talking about, you know, now you're not eating. Like if you, if you sleep two times and you haven't eaten, 
you know, your 48 hours and beyond, that's when I start thinking that it's extended fasting. Because if you're eating every other day, that's not extended to me. So, you know, I've, I did one time, I did, I think, an 84-hour fast. This is way before I knew anything at all. I mean, this is like in my crazy, desperate days. I was like, I'm just going to fast until I lose all this weight. I'm not kidding. I did that. That <laughs> I'm going to fast for three weeks. And then I felt awful. Did you go crazy? Yes. And then I, yes, it was awful. And I didn't end up having any lasting weight loss from it. None. No. It makes sense why I was so hungry, obviously. But yeah, that's the longest I ever did. And I absolutely would not recommend that to people. I really don't recommend people do longer than 72 unless you're under medical supervision because things start to happen. And, you know, you could have things going on that that require, you know, like electrolyte levels, things like that. So I really don't recommend people fast for more than 72 hours unless you're under medical supervision. And even you know, up to 72 hours might not be right for some people. So proceed with caution with the longer fasts. The longer fasts were not a part of my journey. You know, I really, I read Fasting and Eating for Health, Dr. Joel Furman. I read that years and years and years ago. And he talks about how extended fasting is known to lower metabolic rate. I mean, he he's used it with patients, but he's doing it for healing purposes. And so when someone who's a proponent of fasting says, hey, when you're going to do these longer healing fasts, be aware that it's going to slow your metabolic rate. I mean, that made my ears perk up and it made me realize that's not what I want to do. Sarah also wants to know, what's your personal strategy when you feel like caving in a fast? How often does that happen for you? Does it happen for you? There's no no caving. It's just, I think I'll eat now. <laughs> I never, never consider it caving. You know, I eat every day. Ever since 2016, when I did that dabbling, the, I mean, I had done alternate daily fasting in that 2009 to 2014 period when I was trying all the different things. And then I did it a little bit 2015 around the holidays, but then I didn't do it again until 2016 when I did it for a while. And ever since I went back to the daily eating window approach in probably June of 2016, I haven't skipped a day of eating since then. So I haven't had a day where I didn't eat since 2016. So really, there is no caving. There's just today I opened my window earlier than I did yesterday or, or you know, whatever. I, I don't think of it as failing, cheating, or caving. It's, oh, my body's telling me I need to eat earlier today. Or, hey, my sister wants to go to brunch and I'm going to. And I don't perceive that as a failure or caving at all. I will say when I'm trying to decide if I'm going to open my window earlier, I think, am I going to be glad that I did? Will the future me be glad that I ate this? And I'm not talking about the future me from a year from now. I mean, the future me from two hours in the future. Two hours from now, will I be glad I went and had brunch with my sister? Probably the answer to that is yes, because that's so much more than just the food. It's the social event. It's being there. It's, it's the experience of the brunch. But if I'm sitting around the house and I'm making French toast for my husband and I'm like, yeah, that looks delicious. In two hours, am I going to be glad that I made myself a piece of French toast and ate it? No, probably not. Yeah, I think that's a great reframe. I think a lot of people will be like, oh, you know, me next week will be happy. But if you think about literally like in an hour, <laughs> it makes it much more real, makes it much more like, oh. Because in an hour, I'm going to feel draggy and gross after eating the French toast, whereas I would feel fabulous if I didn't eat it. Stephanie wants to know, if you had to lose 10 pounds in two months, knowing all that you know now, which IF protocol would you use to rapidly shed the weight? 
It all depends. If I was brand new to intermittent fasting, I would not set a goal to lose 10 pounds in two months because you need to just let your body do what it's going to do. Let's just do a hypothetical. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Let's say like it's going to save the planet. If, if Jen Stevens loses 10 pounds in two months, for some reason it saves the planet. I would do alternate daily fasting. Or I would probably I would probably do four three slash hybrid. I think I would do I liked having Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday as my down days. And I would probably do Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday. I would probably do the five hundred calorie meal. Well, I don't know. I would I would let my body decide on each of those days. I would fast clean, have the five hundred calorie meal if I wanted to. And then resume the clean fast. And then the next day, have an up day of at least two meals. And then on on the seventh day, because I I like more of a, a pattern. Like I liked knowing that it was going to be Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. So then that gave you two up days in a row, Friday and Saturday. So then Saturday, I'd probably just have an eating window. Julie wants to know, and we have some people who think they know what you're going to say. Julie wants to know, if you could only have one junk food for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Oh, well, I know they know it's Doritos. Yeah, we got Doritos. Some people said pimento cheese. One person said Prosecco, and I was like, I don't consider that junk food. Not junk food. Yeah, it would be Doritos. That's the one thing that my tastes have not gone off of, Doritos. I still would love a Dorito at any time, and I don't buy them for that reason because I would sit down and eat all those Doritos. They're they're still good. My brain still lights up from Doritos. Similar question, and we have answers they think you're going to say. What are some of your typical snacks? To clarify, I guess that would be in your eating window snacks. Oh, yeah, definitely. You only snack in your eating window because even if you think you're snacking during your fast, you're not. (laughs) It is your eating window if you're eating. Anyway, I love to have like a cheese plate. I actually today went to the store and got some delicious cheeses and like some fig jam and some cherry preserves. And I'm going to later open my window with a cheese plate, cheese and crackers. I've been making homemade hummus, which is so easy. Everybody always said it was easy. And it's really as easy as everyone says. You like dump it in, blend it up. There's your hummus. And it's like delicious. You can put anything in there that you like. So I love hummus with, you know, you could put broccoli in there with it. If you're trying to get some more nutrients, you dip it with the broccoli or carrots or pita chips or whatever. That's a great snack. Sometimes I'll have something left over from the night before. You know, if we have a dinner, and especially if it's a big veggie packed dinner and we don't finish it all, I might save a little bit of that and have it to open my window. Also, I love guacamole and chips. Okay, that was one. We had a prediction for guacamole and a prediction for dates with peanut butter. I usually have the dates and peanut butter at the end of my eating window. That's what I did yesterday. Yep. Yesterday I closed with dates and peanut butter. And it's just so funny. I was really sitting there yesterday thinking, I would just love some ice cream. I wish I had some ice cream. And then my brain said, you could go get some ice cream. Then I thought, yeah, but it's going to give me restless legs because that's what sugar does. And then I thought, you know what doesn't give me restless legs? Dates and peanut butter. So I had some. Christine wants to know, what is your go-to meal when you don't have a meal kit coming and you don't want to go out to eat? Yeah, that's tricky because I like lose all the ability to figure out how to cook food. (laughs) Now that I've been using these meal kits since 2016, you know, I use a a bunch of different ones. But honestly, right now at this point, I love to get a bunch of vegetables and roast them, roast some chickpeas and maybe have some couscous or or something, feta, 
put it all together. It's delicious. If a meal kit's not coming, I'm going to do something with a big pile of veggies, some kind of grain, maybe a soup. Or if I'm really can't think of anything, it might be spaghetti. (laughs) That was my old go-to. Sometimes you just want some spaghetti. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands. And it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. 
Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanieavalonscloset.com. That's melanieavalonscloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's melanieavalonscloset.com. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What When Wine. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Nicole wants to know, how's the eating for genetics going? Oh yeah, I quit doing that. <laughs> I just, it's hard to limit fat and fat is delicious and it works well for my body. So... And my, also, my husband said, what are we doing? Stop doing this. Where, where's the food? So he was not a fan of the lower fat. I could do it if it were just me by myself. It does take a lot of work. And the meal kits really do not work well with it if you're trying to eat low fat. Have you tried the self-decode yet platform? The gene? Not yet. Yeah. For listeners, I recently did an episode on a genetic platform I actually really, really love. It will never suggest eat omega-6 polyunsaturated fats for weight loss. No, it's actually really incredible. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It was with Joe Cohen who created the website Self-Hacked and the website Self-Decode. But I will say that when I was doing the low-fat experiment, I realized that I will never again use fake food substitutes that are like, you know, low-fat things. Like I was like, get some low-fat mayonnaise. Let's try that. And I was like, oh my God, no, throw it in the trash. You know, the really the only way to eat low-fat and have real food is you're practically vegan, like the Mastering Diabetes guys. Well, I did really low fat for a long time and it's chicken breast, fish, like lean fish, shrimp. You can eat really high protein. 
I really don't like chicken a ton and I don't like fish. So for me, for me with the foods that I like, lots and lots of fruits and vegetables and grains. That to me is how how I can do low fat and feel great and be satisfied, but with real food versions. Which is like the mastering diabetes type guys. Yeah. Yeah. I could eat their way, but my husband was like, why am I so hungry? (laughs) Where is the food? (laughs) Yeah. I felt great, but anyway, (laughs) it was hard. For listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to the interview with them. It's really fascinating. All about a low-fat diet kind of a lot of mind-blown moments for a lot of people, especially if you've been existing in the low-carb world. It's really interesting. Oh, and also the person who asked what I would do to if I had to lose 10 pounds, she asked about the fasting. But honestly, what would do it for me would be eating like the Mastering Diabetes guys. That would do it. Yeah. When I get that question, I say either PSMF or protein sparing modified fast foods with fasting, but not calorie restricted. So like it's basically low-fat, low-carb, high-protein. I would personally do the lower fat, higher carb. Noreen wants to know, how does she keep from burning out? I promote her books and spread her clean fast message to anyone and everyone. And on my teeny tiny scale compared to hers, and I burn out when friends challenge clean fast. When I started 11 months ago, I challenged it too, a lot. I couldn't imagine defending it in Jen's shoes multiple times daily. Please ask how she stays motivated. That's a great question, and it, it can be a challenge, but remember, I was an elementary teacher. I'm used to being challenged all day, every day <laughs> by the same exact questions over and over and over and over. So when I run my, my Facebook support groups, we have people agree before they join the group as one of the membership questions that they're going to respect our definition of the clean fast. And so we present it to people when they join, and let's say someone's like, hey, can I have lemon in my water? And we're like, no, we do not believe that that's part of a clean fast. And then if someone challenges it, we're like, well, you agreed when you joined the group. This is a non-negotiable. We don't don't debate it. So I found that by saying, agree to respect it, and we don't debate it here. And that's the end of the discussion. And so for people in your real life, obviously, it's different. You know, someone's debating it with me. Actually, a, a lot fewer people debate it now than used to. It's like they finally are like, hey, maybe Jen does know what she's talking about. So if I tell them, they're like, okay, makes sense. But I think the clean fast challenge is the way to handle the people who aren't quite buying the the science. They're like, well, I saw a video and it said I could have stevia and that it was fine. And like, all right, well, I, I understand. I appreciate there are different opinions out there. Take the clean fast challenge. Try it my way. Just give yourself a few weeks and then see if how you feel. And then you're putting it back to them. You don't have to prove it to anyone or change their mind. Just say, well, this is what I believe. How about try it and see what you think? And then it's up to them. They're empowered to use the information or not. But again, I don't debate it with people. I'm not going to debate it. You know, I'm not going to play dueling studies with somebody about it because, you know, if, if you don't want to believe this, that's fine. Do your thing. You know, I believe this makes a huge difference, which is why. It's the approach that I recommend. So you can take it or leave it. (laughs) Did that sound bad? Take it or leave it? No, no, not at all. That's the way I feel. It's like everybody can have their own opinions, do their own thing, do their own research. And I, I love talking about things with people who have, you know, have thoughts about it. It's hard to talk about it if they haven't read your, not necessarily your opinion, but if they haven't, you know, if they're not familiar with the dialogue, I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. 
Like, honestly. This is what I believe, and this is why I believe it. And how about try it my way and just see? Yeah, this is what I think I believe. And I love when people have, you know, different opinions. I I love that. And to clarify, different opinions that they've done the research, not, not just a different opinion where they're just not thinking about it really. But if they have a different opinion and they've done research, I love talking with them because I love being challenged and maybe changing my own thoughts. Well, my thoughts sure changed because I thought, you know, if if you go back to the me in 2015, I was drinking stevia in my coffee all day long. And it wasn't until I read the obesity code and started digging into the science that Dr. Jason Fung presented. And I really, I did not want to believe that was true. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to do it. And then I was like, oh, that does make a huge difference. This is a question for me, not from a listener. What do you think has been the biggest, like, changed your mind on diet thing? Would it be what you just said? Yeah, I think so. Realizing that it, it our bodies are a lot more complicated than calories in, calories out. But also understanding that a lot of people are still stuck in the old paradigm and they just haven't been exposed to the information that will make you realize that you were wrong. Like, for example, just one thing about calories, we know our gut microbiomes greatly affect the number of calories we're able to use from the foods that we eat. And if you don't understand that, you know, we're also very different. And when you re- then you realize, gosh, it makes no sense for us to think we're all going to be exactly the same because we're not. Christina wants to know, do you feel pressure to stay slim and is that hard? Well, you know, yeah, I do feel pressure to stay slim. Is it hard? No, <laughs> because I have intermittent fasting. But she's right. I do feel that pressure because, you know, we've all seen the the diet guru regains weight. No, I don't want to <laughs> regain the weight. I, I do feel a pressure that I need to stay slim. But fortunately, I've got the tools in my toolbox to do it. Teresa wants to know, she says, I know her parents aren't interested in fasting, assuming that is still true, question mark. But are there other extended family members, family other than her sons that she has turned to IF? I have two brothers and one of them does intermittent fasting and his wife, but they both do it. And my other brother doesn't need to. He's one of those people that cannot gain weight no matter how much he eats, which is, again, an example of <laughs> how we're all really different. I mean, my my youngest brother, just he can eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and just like cannot put on the weight. He's just like, you look at him and you think he like never eats, but, but he does. He just can't put on the weight. So, but my other brother and his wife do it. My sister won't do it either. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have a cousin who has been very successful with intermittent fasting, which is thrilling. I didn't know she was doing it. And she struggled with her weight, just like I did all my life. She struggled all her life. And then she was in my group. This is years ago. And I, she was quietly in my group. And then all of a sudden, I saw she made a comment saying how she'd lost 100 pounds. And I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. You know, And it, it's just thrilling to see. And I have so many close friends and college friends and high school friends and childhood friends that are are living the intermittent fasting lifestyle. Also in the family sphere, Heidi wants to know, with your sons entering adulthood and getting married, are you anxious for grandchildren? Oh, yeah, that's going to be so much fun. Grandchildren coming up one day. The one cow that's in San Francisco with his wife, you know, they're married. And so I don't know when they plan to start a family. I don't feel like they, they're planning to start one soon. But, you know, things happen. But 
it's going to be really hard to have grandchildren all the way across the country. So we'll see how that goes. The son that lives here in town, he and I actually had a conversation about that the other day. He doesn't have a significant other, but he talked about how he does want to settle down and raise a family and stay here, which made me happy. That's nice. (laughs) He's only 20, though, so we've got lots of time. Angie, I think this is a great question. She has a few questions. She says, what do you think is the most likely breakout area that we will learn something big about when it comes to the science of weight loss? I really think personalized nutrition is is coming more and more. You know, the PREDICT study that I talked about in Fast Feast Repeat, and now they are doing the PREDICT 2 study. I actually know a bunch of people who are participating in PREDICT 2, but the the interplay between your gut microbiome and your weight and your health and how we really are all different when it comes to what foods work well for our bodies. And that is not just wishful thinking. It it is a fact. And one day, I hope that we understand that we are all different and that we can all coexist equally, understanding that you're not wrong if you think this way of eating works better for you. You're right, even if it's the opposite of what works well for me. Learning to trust our bodies and realizing that we really are different. Personalized nutrition. I want it to be just really common knowledge. Angie also wants to know, I love this. She said, if you could design one research study on IF, how would you do it? Oh, well, it would definitely be with clean fasting. (laughs) You know, I don't know if I could only design one. Gosh, this would actually be unethical though. I would like to design a study comparing clean fasting with, with, you know, not clean fasting, but Knowing what I know, I wouldn't want anybody to have to do the other way. So (laughs) I I guess that would not be a good study. I guess it would be really interesting to do an alternate daily fasting study where they were fasting clean and, you know, one group is having the 500 calorie meal and the other group is fasting straight through. That would be an interesting study, but everybody's fasting clean. Yeah, I would really like to see that. I would really like to see that. Angie also wants to know what are your cat's names? Oh, (laughs) well, our oldest cat is Jackson, and I have to do the math. Let me think. He's four years younger than Will, so he is 16, almost 17, and he's got cancer. So he is on his last little kitty legs, but we thought he was going to die in September, and I was like, this is the day. This is the day he's going to die. Let's call the vet, and then he didn't die, and he rallied, and he's still cruising along. And that's Jackson. And we named him Jackson because he was born under my brother's porch in Jackson, South Carolina. And we got him when he was a kitten. And then our next oldest cat, his name is Ringo. And he has these circles on his on his fur. And he's named after Ringo Starr, the Beatles. So then we kind of got stuck in that whole naming Beatles kind of theme. And I've always wanted to name a cat, Cat, like Cat Stevens, the singer, but my family has vetoed it every time. But my other cat is Ellie. Her name is Eleanor Rigby. And then we have another cat, Lucy. She's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I didn't realize you had that many. I think I only knew about Lucy. I guess you mentioned Ringo. I don't think I knew about Jackson. Yeah, Jackson's Jackson's the old guy. But three of our cats are orange tabbies. Two of the girls are orange tabbies. And, you know, Eleanor Rigby. I did not know about Eleanor Rigby. Yep. Ellie. Ellie. Eleanor Rigby. Oh, Ellie. Oh, I did. Yes, I did. That's Ellie. Yeah, that's Ellie. She's the one with no tail. She's she's the one that got hit by a car and she was in Delay Don't Deny. She's in Delay Don't Deny in the exercise chapter. Exercise. I thought you said extra fries. That's Ellie. It's a picture of her. Leah wants to know, she says, 
What does she have against listening to podcasts? I think it is hilarious how she does two podcasts, but still doesn't listen to any. I don't have anything against it. I was slow to get on the bandwagon for podcasts. In fact, I have podcasts was my first and I'm so glad it was. I'm so glad. I'm just not a listener to things unless I'm driving in the car. And then that's it. I have nothing against podcasts at all. And I know that a lot of people like to have them on. But my problem is I am not good at listening and and learning and paying attention and doing other tasks. I can watch TV all day long and I'm visually and you know, auditorily engaged, but just being auditorily engaged is just not enough for me. That's my learning style, I guess. You know what I'm wondering now? I hadn't thought about this before, but I talked before about how if you say things out loud, like subconscious parts of your brain hears it. Oh yeah, that's very true. I wonder if you have like information type stuff, even if you don't think you're hearing it, like, are you hearing it? Well, it might be going into your subconscious brain, but the only time I can actually focus on it enough to listen is if I'm driving. Because I, you know, driving is so automated and you know the way you do, you're not having to focus on the driving. So, I can drive and listen to something and get the auditory input that way. But I just can't I can't listen to something and do other things in in a daily in my daily life. I just can't. It's like I'm unable to learn that way or to listen. To that point, my mind was blown. I read something, I might have said this before, but like with driving, people often think the fact that we feel like we're not paying attention to driving is really bad, like that we're going to have wrecks. But actually, if we weren't like that, and we were actually consciously focusing on driving, we would be having to make all the decisions about everything. And like, it's like when you're learning to drive and like you, you know, you have to think about like every single thing. So the fact that it's automated is actually much much better. Yeah, because you're not having to focus on all the inputs. Yeah, your brain knows how to react if something happens. And thank you to your subconscious brain that is back there running things all the time. <laughs> Pammy says, do you still use your rebounder? And could you make a could you make a video showing your routine? She says she bought one the same time that you did. My routine is very boring. I jump on it. And sometimes I move my arms around depending on how I feel. But like, I like to watch TV and jump on it. Like I was doing that today. I really just love jumping on it. And I also use the vibration plate. And so does my husband. My husband, the PhD scientist, is convinced of the benefits of that vibration plate. And he gets on it all the time. I'm actually thinking of getting another one because the one I have is the one I love. You have a big one, right? Not anymore. No, I got rid of that one. Mm -mm. I have a Life Pro. See, I don't have room for it. So I might get a little one. Go to the Favorite Things tab of jenstevens.com. I have a link there for a Life Pro vibration plate. They have great customer service. Can I sit on it? You can sit on it, yeah. You can sit on it. You can stand on it, but it's just the platform with no handles. I might get that one. Takes up so much less room. I'd have to say goodbye to the other one. I gave it away. I was like, who wants it? I posted it in like the advanced group, and somebody drove like three hours and came and got it. That's really funny. I know. <laughs> it was last year. I don't know if I would post that now, but anyway. Mindy says, given the success of the podcast and books, do you regret not quitting your teacher job sooner? Well, I couldn't afford to quit until I quit. <laughs> That's the thing. I quit the minute I could afford to quit. And my last year of teaching, I, I always loved going back to school. I always loved it. Like I would get excited. But then the last year, I was sitting at the, di- the dinner table 
one night and I realized I only had one more week before it was time to go back. And I actually started crying. And I was like, okay, I've never felt this way going back to school. I need to be doing other things now. My my calling has changed from teaching. And so then I was like, well, can I afford to, to retire? You know, Because you have to have a certain amount of years in teaching before you can take your pension if you're a certain age. And I was not old enough to get the pension unless I had you know, a certain number of years. So I had to buy some years in order to to get my 30 years and and get the pension. And I was sweating it. I was like, am I going to be able to afford to write this big check to buy these years that I need to? And fortunately, you know, the universe provided. There was a real turning point that I don't know if I ever talked about. It was I had pretty much decided I was going to retire and, you know, assuming and and trusting the universe was going to give me enough money to be able to do it based on, you know, book sales of Delay Don't Deny. In December, I got an email that said, and, and realized I didn't have enough money yet to pay for these years I needed. I got an email that said, your teaching certificate, it's time to renew it. You have to renew your certificate and it's time to start the process. And I was like, well, well I should probably just go ahead and renew it just to be safe. And then I'm like, wait a minute, what kind of message is that sending the universe? I don't want to renew my certificate. So I didn't. I trusted that it would all work out, and it did. Wow. Yeah. I was like, it would be a mixed signal to renew my teaching certificate knowing I wanted to retire. But, you know, I I sold enough copies. I had enough money. I was able to buy the time and retire from teaching. And I loved teaching, and I was very good at it. And I never felt the dread, like I said. But that last year, it just felt felt like I was out of sync with that world all of a sudden. Karen wants to know, to that point... Did you ever in your wildest dreams think that this is what your life would be like? How does it feel? <laughs> How does it feel to be famous now that you're a New York Times bestselling author? Oh, good Lord. That's a crazy word, famous. I don't know that I would say I'm famous, but <sighs> I don't know. It, it, I'm just still me and I always will be. You know, the song Jenny from the Block, you know, <laughs> that, that's always me. I'm never, never going to, to feel like a famous person and I'm just always just going to be myself. So. It is weird to think about. (laughs) Michelle wants to know, what celebrity would you most like to hear has read your book and has reached their health goals with clean fasting? Oprah Winfrey. That's what Allison thought you were going to say. Yep. Oprah Winfrey. I grew up watching Oprah. I, I watched her struggle and, and then I struggled too. And, you know, Oprah Winfrey is a bazillionaire, brilliant woman with access to the best minds out there and she has struggled and that shows us all that it's not our fault and we're not weak and you know if if you could buy thinness she'd have bought it she's got the money it lets us know that it's not a matter of just not being strong enough she's strong it's not a matter of not having it means she's got access to anything and it, it gives us all the feeling of you know it's okay that we've struggled because this is not an easy thing but i bet you she's tried fasting but i bet you she hasn't tried clean fasting cuz she probably you know dr oz is like have some cream <laughs> put some coconut oil in there you know and i get oprah if someone had said to me have some cream have some coconut oil i'd have been like all right i'm going to in fact i did for you know until i realized why i didn't want to but i would love to to know that i had helped oprah Maybe your book will be in the Oprah Book Club, and that'll do it. That would be really fun. It's not even that, though. I mean, I'm a teacher. I want to teach Oprah the the magic. Susan wants to know, without any limits, which five noted public figures would you invite to share your OMAD with? 
Oh, I don't know. I can't. <laughs> I'm just not really up on like Oprah, maybe. What famous people would I like to have come and eat with? I don't know. Yeah, Oprah. Oprah would be great. But I'm very much a regular person person. I would like to meet you, Susan. I like to just sit down with, you know, regular people. I have no desire, no burning desire to hobnob with a bunch of famous people. This is true, listeners. Oftentimes, I'll like be like, Jen, you should bring these people on your podcast that I've had on my show. And she's like, I like talking to regular people. Not reg- not that they're not regular people, but yeah. I just want to talk to Susan. <laughs> that's my calling and my that's what feels best to me. So sort of related, DC, she says, when you read your Facebook group members post, do any of their words move you to tears? Which kind of posts affects you more? The people who have had amazing success or the ones who are struggling so much they are close to quitting? Oh, that's a great question. Really, they all affect me because the the thing that really makes me the saddest is when someone says intermittent fasting isn't working because, you know, the words isn't working implies that intermittent fasting is only going to work if you lose weight. And there's so much more to it than that. And and you're selling intermittent fasting short if you only see it as a means to lose weight. Now, backtrack back to 2014, that's all I thought that it was. And if I hadn't lost weight, I would have quit. So I get it. But I didn't understand all the health benefits either. And so I would never stop intermittent fasting for the health benefits. And that's why my husband does it. But it it makes me, the saddest posts are the ones where people are about to quit because they think it isn't working and they just haven't defined the idea of working. But really, the posts I, of course, love the most that really move me are the people who talk about, you know, lifelong struggles and now they feel free. And so many of them, they're like, hey, I haven't lost all that weight I want to lose yet. I'm not at a goal weight and I don't even care because I finally feel free. That's what really gets to me is when someone just gets it. They embrace the freedom of intermittent fasting and they know it's their health plan with a side effect of weight loss and they trust that their body is doing good things and they no longer are caught up in, you know, what does the scale say? And that that's what really when I I feel like I've done I've done my job. She ends it by saying, Melanie, I'm always curious as to how you and Jen handle the pressure that comes from being experts in your field. I'd be a melted puddle on the floor. I hope you know how special you and Jen are to us. I would say I don't consider myself an expert. That's how I deal with that. (laughs) Well, and also I've told myself I don't have to know the answer to every question and I don't have to pretend to know something I don't know. Once you realize that, you're like, you know, I'm not a medical doctor or a medical researcher and this is what I believe and I could be wrong. And But this is what I have synthesized based on all the reading I've done. This is what the evidence is pointing me towards. But, you know, you don't have to be somebody you're not, and it's okay. And I think probably that's my teaching background. You know, I worked with gifted learners. I worked with teachers. And being able to say, gosh, I don't really know is empowering right there to recognize that you're not expected to know everything. That's how I do it. I mean, I literally don't think I know anything. Ever since those split brain studies... (laughs) Where like clearly our our brains can just make up realities. I'm like, I know nothing. So just a few more. So Maria says, be honest. Do you ever get sick of hearing? Will this break my fast? Yeah, I would like to not ever answer that question again. (laughs) (laughs) So Patricia wanted to know if we had finally met in person. And then Khalil, maybe she says, have Melanie and Jen finally met in person? If you two haven't met up, I'd be miffed. 
I've been listening since beginning and I recall that you hadn't ever hung out. Love you both. Yeah, we haven't. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I have. I wonder that would be probably weird. I mean, I don't know. That would be so interesting, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know you really, really well, but I've never shared oxygen (laughs) in the same space. Somebody suggested I should go on the cruise. I was like, nope. (laughs) We may never cruise again. I'm not making lightly of that. I mean, the cruise industry may not survive this. Same topic. Cherie says, what do you think you and I have most in common and what do we most differ on? We have the fasting in common. And how are we different? Well, obviously, I think it's foods, foods that we that work well for us. That's different. Yeah, that's what they said. Cashews, putting anything in your coffee, even in the first few weeks. Grains and legumes being grand or not. Fish. <laughs> okay. And then, Brenda, are you working on your next book? I actually am. We're talking through some ideas. She says, can you tell us a little about it? No. <laughs> Not yet. We're still we're still talking about it. We've had a few meetings with my literary agent and my editor, and they said this is very not normally how they do it. But we've had several meetings all together. Just we're we're coming up with ideas together and what they want to put together and what you know. I said no to a few ideas. I was like, nope, I don't think we need to write that book. <laughs> not writing that one, you know, because I feel like I'm not writing another intermittent fasting how to. We don't need that. Because we've got the comprehensive God to delay, don't deny intermittent fasting. And that's fast, feast, repeat. And here's my favorite question out of all of them. I don't know why I start crying when I think about it. I started crying when I read it the first time. If you had the whole world listening for five minutes, what would you say? I would say that if you're struggling with your body, it's time to stop feeling like you're working against your body or that your body is not on your team. Because literally everything your body does is to protect you because your body loves you. And so you need to realize you're on the same team as your body. And so you can work together to figure out what your body needs and that none of it is your fault. None of it is because you're weak or there's something wrong with you. You can figure out what your body needs. I love that. So the last question I ask every single guest on this show, I think I only forgot once, and so then I had to email them and get their answer, but it's just because I am realizing more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything, and so it really ties in really to what you just said, but what is something that you're grateful for? I am grateful for the opportunity to bring intermittent fasting to so many people. I'm really grateful that you know St. Martin's Press of Macmillan was willing to publish my book because, you know, I'm, I've got an education background and they, they took a chance with me and let me write a book about intermittent fasting, even though I'm not a doctor. And then it went on to be a, a New York Times bestseller, of course, and they're certainly glad they took that chance. But I'm really grateful that, that people are listening and that I have the opportunity to help people who've been struggling for as long as I did or longer. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for, I told you it would be shorter, but we went long. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm super, super grateful for your time. And listeners, like we talked about, all the information is in Fast Feast Repeat. If you're doing intermittent fasting, wanting to start intermittent fasting, it's a super, super valuable resource. So definitely get it. Jen, how can people best follow your work or what links would you like to put out there? Well, if they go to jenstevens.com, that's Jen is G-I-N, Stevens with a P-H, there are links to everything from there. They can find me 
from there. Awesome. So listeners, we will put all of that in the show notes. And Jen, I will talk to you tomorrow (laughs) for the intermittent fasting podcast. (laughs) All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.